that as we come to the end of the book of Acts, it doesn't really actually feel like an end because it doesn't end, that it actually continues and it has been continuing for 2,000 years and it continues now with us. So we're about to dive into this passage, but I'm just going to pray before that happens. Heavenly Father, we just we come before you now as a church uh, eagerly wanting to live lives of purpose and eagerly wanting to know the will you have for our, our lives. None of us want to waste our lives. None of us want to do something completely pointless or meaningless. We want to have meaning and we want to actually fit in with what we're meant to be doing in this universe. And so we pray that, I guess, as the author of everything, that you would be, you'd be teaching us and, and speaking to us and reminding us about what life is about, that we might actually live in line with the greatest story ever told. And I just pray as we look at your word now that you'd be with us and helping us uh, listen and apply this to our lives. Amen. So we're going to walk through the passage that Gav just read uh, for us a moment ago. But before we do that, I thought I'd just recap where we are in the book of Acts. The book of Acts begins just after Jesus' death and resurrection. And, he, and it kind of starts with him telling his disciples, his first followers, that they're going to spread the news of him uh, first to Judea, which is the nation of the Jews, and then further north to Samaria, which is their closest neighbor. And then after that, the gospel and Christianity is going to spread through the whole, the whole of the world. And in the book of Acts, we see this start to happen. The church goes from a small bunch of Jesus' followers in Jerusalem to hundreds of people scattered around Jerusalem and the neighboring towns to people then spreading throughout the whole of the Mediterranean into different um, language groups entirely. We, we particularly follow the story of a guy called Paul who was the killer of Christians who then converted to Jesus and went around to major cities in the region planting churches. And most recently, the last few weeks in the book of Acts, we've been following this guy, Paul, as he makes his journey towards Rome. He's under armed guard um, because he's a prisoner, and he's been taken to Rome to have his case heard before Caesar because he's been accused of, I guess, undermining the Roman Empire by the Jews. And that's where this reading that Gab just read for us picked up. Paul has arrived in Rome, and he's gone to the leaders of the Jewish people. In verse 17 to 22, if you've got it in front of you, you skim over that. It just says that, that Paul then seeks out the leaders of the Jews in Rome. And he wants to talk to them about why he's a prisoner. And what they respond to him is basically, look, is, um, you know, we've heard about Christianity. We don't really know anything about it. All we know is that everywhere people are saying it's bad and are speaking against it. But we don't really know why. We don't know why you're a prisoner. So let's make a day and then we'll come around to yours. And you've got a whole day in which you can explain Christianity to us. And then we'll decide what we think of it. And so that's what happens. They come to Paul's house. Now, in verse 23, it'll come up on the screen. We, we continue the story. It says, After arranging a day with him, many came to him at his lodging. From dawn to dusk, he expounded and witnessed about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. So Paul, he opens up his house. He gets all these Jewish leaders over. And he explains the gospel to them. And this verse really gives us a summary statement of what, what it was that he taught. And it's really two points. He talks about the kingdom of God, and it says that he tries to persuade them of Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. Um, and whereas I think for the earliest readers of Acts, they would have looked at that and been like, ah, oh, yeah, I got it. I fully get what Paul was doing. When we read it, it might go a bit over our heads. This first phrase, the kingdom of God, is used a lot through the Gospels and the book of Acts. And it's basically a shorthand way of saying God's plan for the whole world, 
culminating in Jesus' death and resurrection. Basically, the kingdom of God is this idea of God's plan to restore, I guess, all people under Jesus' rule. So firstly, Paul explains this. He explains how God has got a plan to bring the whole world under Jesus. But then it's, it expands on that a little bit more, and it says that he attempts to persuade them of Jesus through the law of Moses and the prophets. And the law and the prophets here, right, this is shorthand for, I guess, the Jewish Bible or what is now our Old Testament. It, the Old Testament, in the way that the Hebrews had arranged it, was into the sections called the law and the prophets. And I think when we read it, we can often just see, you know, the law. When we sit, hear the law, we just think of a list of rules, regulations, instructions. Um, and therefore, that somehow Paul was teaching about Jesus from laws and instructions. But this word law, or Hebrew Torah, is actually talking about the first five books of the Bible, which, more than a list of rules, is actually a narrative. It's a section of history that outlines everything that happens from the world being made to people kind of falling into sin and then the formation of the people of Israel. And when we hear prophets, we probably think of monologues, these just big kind of speeches by spiritual men. But the section in the Old Testament, in the Jewish Bible, called the Prophets, was again entire books of history of how the Jewish people kind of colonized their land and set up kings and structures and rulers and how God was interacting with them, with them through this and all the promises God made to them. So it's basically a story. So what Paul is doing here is he's, he's going with these Jews through their story, through their history, and he's showing that everything in the story up to that point is pointing towards Jesus. He's saying if you want to understand who Jesus is, you'll understand him through the story that's happened so far. Um, I was trying to think of an analogy. I think it's a bit like trying to explain Darth Vader from episodes 1 to 3 of Star Wars. Now, if you're not a Star Wars nerd like I profess to be, um, you'll probably still know that Darth Vader is the guy with the black mask and he's Luke's dad, now, even if that's all you really know. But, but Darth Vader, he's someone that we met in episodes 4 to 6 of Star Wars that came out in the 70s and 80s, going into a lot of detail here about Star Wars. But, uh, but in the 2000s, episodes 1, 2, and 3, the prequels were released. And in the prequels, all this stuff that, up until this point, Darth Vader, he's just a, a mean guy with a black helmet who tries to, like, strangle people with the force, right? No, you don't know much else. But then in the 2000s, we actually get this revelation that there's this whole backstory that makes sense of, of, of what's going on with him. Now, if you've seen the first three Star Wars mo- movies, you'll understand straight away how it's possible to explain Darth Vader from the first three movies. Because you know about the story of the Jedis and, and, and Anakin and Darth Sidious and how Anakin fell into the dark side of the Force. But if you haven't seen those movies, everything I just said is complete kind of gobbledygook and you're just wishing this ridiculous Star Wars analogy will end and we can move on. So in the, in the same way as that, though, I think if you know your Old Testaments well... Um, you're like, yeah, I get it. Paul's using the Old Testament to point to Jesus. But for most of us here, I reckon it's the case that we're actually more familiar with Star Wars than we are with the first half of our Bibles. So what is obvious for the first Christian readers of Acts, which were Jews, this summary of Paul's message just goes straight over our heads and we actually don't really know what Paul's talking about. When we think of Jesus, I think more often we're prone to think of him as this kind of mythical man that just kind of popped up at one point in history and then disappeared, kind of disconnected from everything that happened before and everything that's happened after. But if you want to understand Jesus the way that Paul wants you to, you need to see that like Darth Vader, Jesus doesn't just appear out of nowhere, that there's this history that kind of explains who he is. Uh, And for the record, that's the extent of the similarities between Jesus and Darth Vader. Um, The Jews knew 
the story of the law and the prophets. And Paul wants to convince them that it all points to Jesus. And so a summary of the story of the Old Testament. The Old Testament begins with the creation of the world. The world is made good and beautiful and wonderful in a universe that is good and beautiful and wonderful. But this doesn't last long because we learn of the concept of sin, which is people rejecting God and wanting to rule their own lives. And sin turns the whole world upside down. It's the reason that everything is messed up. It's the reason that you can't talk to God like he's face-to-face and he just feels so distant so much of the time. It's the reason that our relationships with other people are constantly full of conflict and misunderstanding and betrayal and, and hate and bitterness. It's the reason that the world seems so chaotic and painful and there is suffering and disease and brokenness and war. It is the reason that everything is messed up. And while we, when we look at the world, we feel like it's just not right. And so God says, comes up with a plan to actually bring things back to the way things were meant to be. And that's the story of the Old Testament. Halfway through Genesis, we meet this guy called Abraham, and God says to him, through you and your descendants, I'm going to bring about a person that's going to make everything right again. And Abraham's descendants grow into this great nation called Israel who get enslaved in the, in the country of Egypt. And then God rescues them from Egypt, takes them to this land which is going to be their own, and it's perfect, the land which is now known as Israel. And he gives them this land. And in this land, he gives them a bunch of things to start restoring the way the world is meant to be. He gives them a place that they can go to be in the presence of God, which is the temple or the tabernacle, a, a, a symbolic representation of God being in their midst. He gives them a system of sacrifices that through killing doves and goats, they can be reminded that there is actually a price to pay for sin and that something other than themselves are going to pay it. He gives them a system of laws so they can actually know how they're meant to live in a way which honors God and means they can relate rightly with him. They get given a king to rule over them who is meant to rule in the way that God rules over them. They get given a bunch of promises. They get promised that there will one day be a king who will suffer and die for their people. They get promised that they're going to have a, really an anointed one which will rule, lead them out of uh, obscurity and suffering into being the new rulers of the world. They get told that one day they'll be able to love God with their actual hearts, not just be relying on a bunch of rules to get them by. And they get told that one day, relating to God and being in a relationship with him won't just be a thing for the Jews, but it will be a thing for all people. And so given this history, Paul wants to convince them this whole story, it all points to Jesus. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham who will make everything right. Jesus is the one who will rescue them from spiritual slavery. Jesus is the one who will lead them to a perfect new land. He is the one that they can go to instead of the temple to experience the presence of God. He is the sacrifice for their sins so they no longer need doves and goats to do that for them. Uh, He is the Messiah who is going to lead the people to, to an everlasting kingdom. He is the one who is going to allow them to love God with their whole heart. He's the one who did actually love God with his whole heart so that we can actually experience that in him. And he's the one who will one day unite all nations of earth back into relationship with God. Paul knew his Old Testament back to front and so he spends a whole day with these Jews teaching them how this story points to Jesus. And his point is simple. His point is that the whole of history up to that point is working towards one man, Jesus Christ. That he's the center of everything. And to miss that and to not worship him as Paul did would be to miss out on the most important thing that had ever happened. But in verse 24, we see that this divides them. Verse 24 says, Some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. 
And so in the, in the midst of this disagreement, then we see actually Paul says something that's actually really quite major. He quotes from a book of the Old Testament called the book of Isaiah, and he makes a major point. Uh, I'm going to read it out at length here. From verse 25, it says, Disagreeing among themselves, they began to leave after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit correctly spoke through the prophet Isaiah to your ancestors when he said, Go to these people and say, You will listen and listen, yet never understand. And you will look and look, yet never perceive. For the hearts of these people have grown callous. For the ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart and be converted, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this saving work of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. After these things, the Jews departed while engaging in a prolonged debate among themselves. What's going on in these verses? What goes on here is that after Paul has explained that the whole of history up to that point is pointed towards Jesus, he's saying that the story is not over yet. The story is not over. Although the, what he's quoting from, this book of Isaiah, was talking about the Jews hundreds of years before, Paul applies it to himself. And what he's saying is that although the one who is promised, the one who is going to bring the Old Testament story to a close and fulfill it all is here, that the Jews aren't going to accept it. He's saying that they've shut their eyes to the truth, that the Jewish nation as a whole will never embrace Jesus as their king. The first Christians were Jews, and, and, and individual Jews um, followed Jesus and were the ones that started the early church. But what he's saying here is that as a nation, the Jews aren't going to accept it. But then he makes an astonishing claim, and the claim that he makes is, is really amazing, which is the saving work of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And this word Gentiles, it just means basically everyone who's not an, an ethnic Jew. He's saying that the, the, the whole world is going to actually listen to this message of Jesus. Now, on face value, that claim may not amaze you, but it is an astonishing claim to be made by Paul. It's actually an astonishing claim to be made by anyone at the point in time that Acts was written. When, when this was said, Paul is a prisoner in a foreign city telling a message that no one there has heard about a guy who was killed in disgrace in his, in his home country, days and days journey away, who has followers who are mocked and insulted and imprisoned and killed, whose whole life was the fulfillment of a story recorded only in Hebrew that only the Jews knew about. And he's saying, everyone's going to listen to the story about this guy. Everyone is going to respond to it. Now, on the, on the scale of ridiculous claims, that would be like me saying that this summer I'm going to bring in the man Keeney as the must-have the must beachwear item for men. And that, mark my words, by the end of summer, you're going to go down to Bondi Beach and every single guy will be wearing a mankini because I kind of led the way. It's a ridiculous claim that you wouldn't take seriously, and people didn't take Paul seriously. The claim he makes that a crucified Jewish man is going to capture the whole world is crazy. But the only thing crazier than that claim is the fact that it actually happened. These words were penned in the book of Acts when Christianity was still in just relative obscurity. And that's where the book of Acts ends. It's this movement that barely anyone still knows about. But 2,000 years later, amazing things have happened. 
Paul's words have come true in ways that I don't think anyone could have ever dreamed. What I want to do now is just watch the screen. We're just going to have a, a short video which actually just shows with a bit of a timeline how, how it is that Christianity has got to where it is today. Um, so check out the screen and we'll talk about it in a minute. How bad is that stupid dramatic music? Am I right? <laughs> that was even louder than it was at 11 a.m. Um, but I, I thought about it. Like the other option is just turn the sound off, and then we're sitting here in complete silence, and that was going to be more awkward. So we went with the crazy dramatic imperial march sort of music. But um, I don't know. It just, as you're watching that, I just, I just found it on YouTube yesterday. Um, but, but just the, the reminder it is that we're actually part of something that has been been just continuing. And the fact that other empires have, have, have risen and they have fallen just to, to, to epic proportions throughout history, and yet Christianity, just like Paul said it would, has been spreading to the ends of the earth. And if you saw, like, just by the end of it in that last frame, it's, it's not yet everywhere. This is still an ongoing thing. We ourselves find ourselves in the midst of this history of Christianity spreading to the ends of the earth, this message of the gospel of Jesus going everywhere. And it's just, it is crazy to see how this prophecy has come true. So many people throughout history have kind of claimed that they're going to be the next big thing that's going to kind of take over. But Paul, a prisoner in Rome, says that the nations are going to listen to this message. And then 300 years later, the entire Roman Empire is Christianized and the emperor himself is a professing Christian. 2,000 years later now, there are Bibles translated in more languages than we could ever count. There are Christians today on a Sunday, worshipping in the most obscure ends of the earth. What, what Paul has said will happen has been happening. But that's not to say that we're just at the, ground, at the end of it and now it's finished and we can look back on how it's all been happening. No, we're very much still in the middle of this. I want to show you some more slides. You go to the next slide here. Um, you can see on the screen, each of these green dots represents a people group that is in the category of reached. And by reached, what the kind of definition... A people group is a group of people united by language and cultural identity uh, in the thousands of people. And, and, and a reached people group, each of these green dots represents a, a group of people in which 
2% or more of the population are evangelical born-again Christians. So you see here that, that Christianity is spread to a huge part of the world. Uh, Three billion people of the Earth's population are part of a people group that has more than 2% Christians, uh, uh, an active professing Christian faith in their community. But if you go to the next slide here, this is engaged yet unreached. These are 3,700 people groups consisting of 4 billion people of which less than 2% of the population are Christian, but that there are missionaries, uh, Christian organizations, church planning groups who are intent on reaching these people. So there are right now 3,700 people groups that have got active uh, church planning uh, missions happening within them. But if you go to the next slide again, we see here unreached people groups, which is 3,100 people groups uh, consisting of 200 million people in which both less than 2%, in most cases 0% of the population, um, are active committed Christians. And yet at the same time, not a single mission organization, church, Christian group are at the moment attempting to reach them, which is staggering. Um, it's staggering on two levels. One, because it means there are, there are two million people that people aren't even trying to get the gospel to them in their language um, or into their culture. But it's also staggering in the sense of how achievable it is that all it would take would be 3,100 churches of the hundreds of thousands of churches in the world to commit to one group each to actually start investing in and, and reaching these groups. We are very much in the middle of this story. The story that has been going before the time of Jesus as God had dealt with the people of Israel and then at the time of Jesus and from the book of Acts on has spread to the world is still continuing now. There is a huge amount of work left to be done. There is a huge amount of work left to be done. The story of Acts does not end at the book of Acts. It's just the beginning of what's going on. This is a story that is so much bigger than any one of us as individuals. Before you were born, before your parents were born, before your grandparents were born, this was happening. Unless the world ends in your lifetime, this will be happening long after anyone remembers you. This story is bigger than our little individual stories of maximizing comfort and personal gain. It encompasses the billions of people that are on this earth earth right now, and it spans from eternity past to eternity future. And so my question today is for Christians here in this room, and, and for myself as much as anyone, does this story shape who you are and the decisions that you make? The thing I love most about preaching um, isn't, getting up, isn't getting up here and actually preaching, but it's being forced to sit down for a, for a day or two and just think about biblical truth. And, and yesterday afternoon I was doing that with this and just reflecting on... On how often for me, when I think about my life, and say I think, you know, what do I want to do in the next 10 years, how much of it is just based on what's going to be comfortable, where do I want to live, what sort of lifestyle do I want to have, um, what's going to be something which I'll be kind of proud to tell my friends that I'm doing, um, way more than it is a question of how do I fit into this story of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Uh, I think in a very small and narrow way about my life. 
the story of God bringing the whole world back into a right relationship with him is, is, is the big story. That's the big picture that we're meant to be a part of. And that's why we need to be open to God taking our lives anywhere. Um, so encouraged by Anna uh, and what she was sharing when she was interviewed just then uh, about how she's just kind of given God a bit of a blank check to just say, I'll go wherever you want me to go. Uh, without having any kind of prior desire to necessarily go to Italy, it was just an opportunity that came up. Graham and Sarah present a compelling case as why they need help over there to reach Italians with the gospel. And Anna's just saying, that's not really what necessarily excited me for my whole life and it's not my dream, but I'm, I guess I'm open to it. And we need to be like that. And I think the remarkable thing is that that could be any one of us. I was visiting Graham and Sarah in Italy last October and I was saying, you know, what does it look like for us to support you? What do you want to see happen at City Light in terms of how we relate to you? And they were like, we just, we just look forward to the day when someone from this congregation, from City Light, actually goes and joins them in the mission in Italy. And I was thinking, oh, who, like, who would that be? I was trying to think, like, I wonder who will be the person to go. Maybe in a few years so it'll happen, but I couldn't really th- you know, think if anyone's going to do that in the short term. But it's a year later and Anna's going to, to suss it all out. I think we can often just write ourselves off as being potentially someone that God is going to use in a massive way for his plan. Um, if you actually go back, go back to that slide um, the, with the red dots, if we can. You can see here that of, of these unreached people groups, the vast majority of them are in this section kind of in the middle that ranges from northern Africa to the Middle East to India and through, uh, through China, which is known by a lot of people as the 1040 window. It's 10 degrees north of the equator through 40 degrees north of the equator. And this is where the vast majority of unreached people are. And most of these countries that you see there are in places where if you, if you go to some of these northern African uh, Islamic world countries or through the Middle East in, in Yemen and Syria or through Pakistan and, and northern India or, or, or parts of, uh, of communist China up through to North Korea, if you, if you go there, you're risking your life. But, but this is where the ends of the earth are now. These are the people that the gospel hasn't been to. Just as Paul boldly went to to Rome, knowing that's probably where he was going to get killed for his faith. Uh, people need to be going to these places. And my hope is that one day, someone from Skylight will go there. But as I say that, I need to ask myself the question, well, you know, why not me? If God can use anyone, if God has this plan and it's, it's more important than any, than any comfort or anything that I want, I need to be open to this. Someone's got to do it. How often are we actually reflecting and thinking like, God, what do you want me to do? How often do we just say to God, look, you know what, I'm going to just put all my ambition on hold for a moment and just, and just pray and say, God, if you just show me. Open doors. Have, put people in my life who are going to speak wisdom to me. Help me study your word and be convicted of the truth of it and say, God, I'll do whatever you want. It's a scary prayer to pray. We're going to have a moment of reflection pretty soon. Maybe that's a prayer that you want to think about praying. Um, it's not a prayer you want to pray lightly. Um, but maybe you are at that point where you want to do that today. But before we, before we do that, I just want to take us to the last two verses of the book of Acts. Um, we've been looking, the, the gospel going to the nations is, is very big picture. And we need to see big picture in terms of working out where our little puny, nothing lives fit into the, into the big scheme of things. But, um, but I think we just see another perspective on it from these last two verses of the book of Acts. So the last two verses. 
talking about Paul, it says, Then he stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with full boldness and without hindrance. And that's, that's it, that's the end. They don't say the end in, in the Bible, but, but that is the end. Um, and it's not a particularly exciting ending. It doesn't end with Paul meeting Caesar, the, the ruler of the world at that time, uh, which we know from other accounts that he did. It doesn't end up with the conversion of Rome, um, which again happened, happened afterwards. It doesn't end with Paul's just heroic death at the hands of the Romans, which again happened a few years later. It just ends with Paul renting a place and welcoming visitors and preaching the gospel. Like it's, when, we, when we talk about thousands of unreached people groups or we look at Australia and, and our population of 20-whatever million people and the fact that so few of them would, are, are Christians or, or even are interested in it, we can feel overwhelmed and think, I can't make a dent in this thing. But what we see here, as we just kind of narrow down into this one guy, Paul, is it's really the way that the gospel is spread. Like, what we saw in a minute of 2,000 years' worth of Christianity spreading uh, is really the culmination of a lot of things that on their own don't look particularly impressive. I'm sure there's been a few people in history that have, you know, just taken the gospel into, into brand new cultures and it's exploded there when it's never had the gospel before. And there's been a few preachers throughout history that can kind of summon hundreds of thousands of people to listen to them in auditoriums or big open fields and get converted on the spot. But that's not normal in terms of how Christianity grows. Uh, if Think through how you became a Christian if you're a Christian here today. Think, how, how many of you, is it just because someone in your life, whether you, your parents or your friends or someone else, just was relatively normal and explained the gospel in a way that made sense to you and had enough of a good life to back it up that you found it compelling? That's, that's how Christianity spreads, and that's what Paul does here. This week I heard that, um, going back to that idea of the 1040 window, right now there are 40,000 missionaries in that 1040 window, in, in those countries around the Middle East uh, and Northern Africa, um, up through the top of India. And there are 40,000 in all Christian denominations that are right now supported to be there uh, for the purpose of making the gospel known. But there's 40,000 missionaries total. But at the same time, in those regions, there, as a, as a conservative estimate, so almost definitely more than this, but going as conservative as you can, there are 200,000 evangelical Christians there for um, just working in business or humanitarian causes or just as a normal kind of secular job. Now, if there's 200,000 Christians that just have normal jobs for companies in these countries saw themselves as being there to spread the gospel in the midst of just living their life and loving the people they come into relationship with and, and speaking the gospel when they had opportunity, that would increase the missionary effort in that area by 500% instantly without the church spending another cent. But, but even bringing it closer to home. Uh, my experience of, of growing up in an evangelical church in, in Sydney is that we're often very, very good at, at celebrating people who are moving into some kind of full-time ministry. As if, you know, quitting your normal job um, and working in, in more of a specifically Christian-orientated field is the, the fullest way to participate in God's story of reaching the nations with the gospel. But 
what we see here in this passage, we see Paul, and this line that's translated here as living in his own rented house is probably translated better as just living at his own expense. He's this guy that's just working a job to afford a place so he can be where he wants to be, which is Rome, and welcome people in and share, them, share the gospel with them. At other points in his life, he's been financially supported by the church to do missionary work, and that's good as well. But for at least two years in his life, he presumably goes back to his trade, which was he made tents and sold them. And with the money from selling tents, he could pay his rent and, and eat and, and welcome people. Like it's, it's the most simple thing. And I think what Australia needs more than it needs more people going into a church-supported ministry role is more Christians who are just willing to work and sometimes, I guess, in their dream job, but probably a lot of the time in relatively unimpressive, not-so-flashy jobs so that they can afford to live and show hospitality and reach people in the community around them. It's, it's far less glamorous. It's, there's really nothing glamorous about it at all. But it's what, it's what Australia and it's what the world needs for the gospel to go forward. And I think it's hard to do. I think it's hard to work and not just buy into the mindset of just climbing the ladder and succeeding and, and pursuing success and comfort and and happiness, because that's, that's not the aim of Paul's work. His aim of, of his work is presumably he made some good tents. I'd love to own one of Paul's tents if I had the opportunity. But, but it was to enable him to just to be a, a missionary in everyday life. So we need to actually be thinking about our lives in terms of, look, how, what does it look like for me to work in a way which means I'm pretty well set up to engage with the dying world and have opportunities to show God's goodness, to welcome people, who come to me with questions, to have time for them and to share the gospel with them. And that might mean you change careers. It might mean you keep the same career. It might mean that you buy a house. It might mean that you rent a house. It might mean that you work in a rich area and live in a rich area. It might mean that you live in a poor area. It could mean absolutely anything in terms of what it looks like. But the lens in which we need to ask the question is what does it look like for my life to be contributing to this greater story? The story of the world being reached with the gospel doesn't only move forward by people moving to the other side of the world. Although, there are, like we saw, there are 200 million people that right now don't have any Christians even living in the same town or speaking the same language, so there are going to be a bunch of people that will have to move to the other side of the world to do this. But in the meantime, the gospel spreads through just living like Paul does here, through, through working a job and having an open home to invest in people relationally and then share the gospel when you have an opportunity. And so in some ways, your life might look just very similar to those around you. Um, You might be a teacher and your non-Christian friends might be teachers. You might have people over for a barbecue on the weekend. People who don't know Jesus have people over for a barbecue on the weekend. Um, So what's what's the difference? The difference is that we are part of a story that gives meaning to the most seemingly small and mundane trivial things. That's why going to work is valuable. That is why socializing is valuable. It's not just because we're doing things that, oh, what's going to make me feel good? But it's, how am I going to actually contribute to this great story that's, that's taken up all of history with the gospel going to the nations? And it might just be very non-glamorous things. No one's going to write a biography of the story of the teacher who had a barbecue. Um, it just doesn't sound particularly impressive. It just sounds really normal. But that's what's going on here. The, the last bit of the, of the book of Acts, Paul rented a house and had people over. Uh, it's just it's this small thing. And so I think we just need to be engaging in our lives with this, with this willingness to accept what God has for us, whether that is selling everything and moving to a dangerous, scary, unknown place. And my prayer is that people will be doing that from this church. 
or whether it's getting up on Tuesday morning and going back to work with the willingness that at the end of the day, it's not just about you, it's not just about your job, but it's about joining in this mission that is taking over the whole world to see people know Jesus and find full life in him. We're going to start a new series, like Gav said, in a couple of weeks on the Sermon of the Mount. And our hope is that in this next term, between now and Christmas, we see people who don't know Jesus come into a real relationship with him. And we hope that happens. Maybe it's in next week in the town hall. Maybe it's here on a Sunday, one of the following weeks. But maybe it's just in life. Maybe it's people seeing our community groups of 10 to 15 people kind of living and loving each other. Maybe it's through what actually happens in your workplace or how you socialize on the weekend. But our prayer is that we're actually going to see this story continue. And that as a church, we get to be a part of it. So I'm going to pray now. And then after, after I pray, um, we're just going to leave, leave us with a bit of time to reflect and to actually think about, I guess, what this story has to do with our lives. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that life isn't meaningless, um, that we have something bigger we can go to that means that life just, it doesn't matter all the things that we get told matter. It doesn't matter what, what job we have as much. It doesn't matter what, what our life looks like if, we, if, we're, if we're healthy, if we have lots of free time, if we have the perfect relationship or the perfect family or the perfect car, that we can forget about all these things knowing that they are just so trivial compared to what we get called into when we follow Jesus into being part of this amazing story. Um, we thank you that we have the Bible which shows that all history before Jesus is working towards him and everything that's happened since has been the gospel going to the nations. And we just pray that we would be able to be a part of that. Lord, I pray for those of us that you would like to move to places that right now just seem so... Uh, foreign and, and uncertain and scary. I just pray that you would be at work in our, in our hearts and give us conviction. Um, but not only that you'd give us conviction, that you'd give us willingness so that we'd just be up for, we'd be up for whatever you have for us, God. Um, we pray that you would just take, um, take our whole selves and do with them what you would. That we as a church... Uh, might rejoice in, in the honor it is to actually be part of this story. I we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, take a minute to reflect, um, and then we're going to sing together.